Morning. Hey, grab a Bible and turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. We've all been around uh, those kinds of people when uh, you're in conversations with them. They start dropping names. You'll be talking to someone and they'll be like, oh, I remember when I was at such and such a place and I met so-and-so, oh yeah. And then I went to such and such a place and I met so-and-so. Oh yeah, I know pastor so-and-so. Oh yeah, I know the president of such and such. Oh yeah, the CEO of this and that. Yeah, I know those people. And when you're around the kind of person who name drops all the time, you kind of look at them and think, "Why well, you're being a little prideful. You're just throwing names out. You don't maybe have a relationship with them. You just pretend like you have a relationship with everyone. And so we call those kinds of people name droppers. They just speak as if they know everyone. In Colossians 4, verses 7 to 18... The untrained eye might think that Paul is just name dropping. That he is just listing a bunch of names, uh, people that he knows in ministry and say, oh yeah, I know such and such and I know so and so and and greet such and such and, and say hi to so and so as if he's just throwing out names. But really what Paul is doing in this last part of Colossians is not name dropping. Quite the contrary. Paul is actually highlighting a group of people who are his servant leaders. A group of people whom he is so proud of and whom he has intimate relationship with. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Would you stand with me as we read from Colossians 4, the last part of our study in the letter to Colossians. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7, all the way to the end. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, he will tell you all the news about me, Paul writes. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, a faithful and a beloved brother, who's one of you. They'll make known to you all the things that are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, these are my only fellow workers from the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who's one of you, a bondservant of Christ, he greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. For I bear Epaphras' witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. Verse 16. Now when this letter is read, this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also 
in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 7, 7 to 9. Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the New Testament. He's actually one of the most frequent companions of the Apostle Paul. We first meet him in Acts chapter 20 where he's traveling with Paul to Jerusalem to deliver a donation to the church in Jerusalem. And, and Paul, having had a, a long relationship by now with Tychicus, he describes him in some ver- with some very intimate terms. He calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus is like a brother to Paul, and Paul loved him for that close kinship. He was a faithful minister with Paul, diakonos in Greek. It means he was a servant. He was a minister. And then third, Tychicus was a fellow servant or doulos in the Lord. The word doulos can also mean a slave. He was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Tychicus utterly devoted himself to the work of the gospel. And perhaps uh, second only to, to Timothy, Was he a very close companion of Paul's? Tychicus likely also carried, he probably hand carried the letter that you and I read and know as the book of Colossians. It was a letter written to the church in Colossae. Paul was writing it from Rome, and he was on house arrest in Rome. He was in chains, so to speak, under house arrest, writing a letter to a church he had never met. But he learned a little bit about, we'll see again how he knew about this church. And he wrote them a letter and he handed it to Tychicus and said, go and deliver this to them. Tychicus traveled from Rome to Colossae, nearly 1,500 miles, halfway across the United States. So he was a private mailman of sorts. But rumor has it that uh, Paul thought about using the Roman postal service But after waiting in line three hours just to buy stamps, he eventually gave up and handed the letter to Tychicus. Uh, I'm told that not much has changed in 2,000 years. I thought that that would be much funnier. (laughs) I was going to talk about Saturday delivery, but yeah, I'll I'll pass. While Tychicus carried the letter, so he's carrying the letter 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles. While he's carrying the letter, uh, we should know that Tychicus was no regular mailman who merely delivered the letter and went about his business. No, Paul actually gave Tychicus two primary responsibilities. Number one, he told him, go tell the Colossians about my situation. Tell them about my imprisonment. Tell them about my future plans, Paul instructed Tychicus. That meant that Tychicus was to read the letter to the church and to talk about his brother, the Apostle Paul. 
And then the second task that, that Paul gave Tychicus was to listen to the Colossians. To listen to them. Notice verse 7, the end of verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me, and I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So Tychicus' role was to speak to them and to receive from them. Remember, Paul had never personally visited Colossae. All he knew about the church came from a man by the name of Epaphras, whom we'll see again shortly. So it was important that Tychicus go and minister to the church on Paul's behalf. He was Paul's emissary to give encouragement to them, to give instruction to them, to not only teach them, but to listen to them. A measure of reciprocity, a measure of give and take. Paul wanted to know what they were going through. He wanted them to know what he was going through. And that's why we do testimonies. That's why Amy comes forward on a day like today. And we, we, we hear testimony of what's happening halfway across the world in Myanmar. We bear testimonies like that. And we, we bring others to the front to, to bear testimony that we might know what they're experiencing. And that, that, we, that, they, that they might share with us and that we might receive from them. And partner with them. And hear about how the church is doing overseas. Hear about how it's doing in Myanmar and Haiti and anywhere else that we might have interest. We stand by one another. Why? Because we're all a part of the body of Christ. When one part rejoices, we rejoice. When one part suffers, we suffer. Now Tychicus was not the only one traveling and carrying this letter. He was with another companion. In verse 9 it says that he's coming with Onesimus. A faithful and a beloved brother who is one of you. And they will make known to you, Paul writes, all the things which are happening here. Tychicus traveled to Colossae with Onesimus, whom Paul says is, quote, one of you, one of the Colossians. And in fact, the Colossians did know Onesimus quite well. You see, Onesimus was a runaway slave from the community in the church. His master was a man by the name of Philemon, who was likely the same man in whose home the Colossian church met for church gatherings. We glean all this information, not necessarily from Colossians, but from another book just a little bit later on. Uh, If you turn a few books down, past Thessalonians, past Timothy, past Titus, you come to the book of Philemon. Or the letter to Philemon. It's also written by Paul. It's written uh, to a man by the name of Philemon, whom Paul addresses as both a church leader and also as the master of a runaway slave named Onesimus. So what's, what's fascinating about the history that we've been going through as we've been looking at this book over the last few months is that not only is Tychicus and Onesimus hand-carrying the letter to Colossae, they're also hand carrying a private letter to one of the leaders at that church. They're hand carrying the letter to Philemon, the master of Onesimus, who's returning back to his master and to his community, hoping that they will receive him in the Lord. 
It's a fascinating set of circumstances that is developing here in the book. It's one of the most, uh, by the way, Philemon is one of the most beautifully written letters um, on Christian forgiveness and reconciliation, on what it really looks like. Paul asks Philemon in that letter to not only forgive Onesimus for running away, but also to free him from slavery, that he might serve the Lord alongside Paul. Paul appeals to Philemon. He doesn't command him, though he could. He appeals to him, and it's, it's a beautiful letter. We've, we've studied it before. I hope you'll, you'll read it again as you have time. And so not only were Tychicus and Onesimus coming with a letter to Colossae, they were coming with a letter for Philemon. They were carrying a personal letter to the host of the church, whom Paul knew needed some special attention when he saw his runaway slave return. Onesimus was now a co-worker with Paul in the gospel ministry. Like Tychicus, Paul calls Onesimus a faithful and a beloved brother. But unlike Tychicus, Paul does not call Onesimus a fellow servant or doulos or slave. Why? Because that's the exact same terminology that he's hoping to break in Philemon, in his mindset, as Onesimus goes. And so it's interesting how Tychicus is called a fellow doulos, a slave. And Onesimus, Paul does not use that term to describe Onesimus because he knows the perception that's already there in the community that they, might, that they might receive that word in a different sense that Paul than Paul wants to intend. You see, Paul wants to communicate that Onesimus is not a slave anymore. He's a partner in the gospel ministry. Paul wants Philemon and the entire church to recognize these things. That Onesimus is now one of you, he, he writes in verse 9. What a story of redemption. When Paul says in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus, Paul means it. And Onesimus is evidence of that. And that is why I think I said uh, a couple weeks back when we discussed uh, some of the end of chapter 3 and the mentioning of, of slavery and masters and slaves, people often ask, you know, isn't, is Paul in favor of slavery? Is he a proponent of it? Absolutely not. In fact, it is Paul's writings among the first of any ancient writings that lay the groundwork for the emancipation of slavery. And it is Paul's writings that many, many, many Christians appealed to who were abolitionists in the early days of this country. He showed, Paul showed, his true intent as he sent Onesimus back and asking Philemon to free him. Regardless of our background, God can redeem us. He can take what was once enslaved and renew it by his love. Therefore, Galatians, he says elsewhere in Galatians, therefore you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Tychicus and Onesimus went on Paul's behalf to the church to speak to them, to teach them, and to receive word back from them. They were two key servant leaders on Paul's team. He wasn't just name dropping. He was speaking of men he had incredible relationship with and high regard for. And there were others. 
that Paul speaks of, who were sending greetings to the church, that were keeping Paul company in Rome. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he greets you. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. And they have proved to be a comfort to me. The next three teammates here on Paul's uh, servant leadership team are all men of the circumcision. That is to say, they were all Jewish. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, also known as Justice. Not much is known of the, the first and the third man, uh, men mentioned there. Aristarchus is mentioned only a handful of times as a traveling partner of Paul's. He was a, surely a devoted follower and helper of Paul because he was a fellow prisoner. And this probably did not mean that he was arrested with Paul, but it probably meant that he voluntarily went under house arrest with Paul. That Aristarchus, when, when Paul was arrested and put on house arrest, that Aristarchus was one who would go into the home and voluntarily spend imprisonment time with Paul. Back in those days, uh, the, the, the prison system was not such that uh, you were afforded uh, food and, and uh, drink and exercise equipment and all the like. Uh, you were expected upon arrest and imprisonment, you were expected to have family or friends help you, bring you food, bring you drink. And Aristarchus was likely one who aided Paul throughout his imprisonment. A steady companion. Then there's Jesus, who is also known as Justice. Justice is mentioned only here in the New Testament. His birth name, Jesus, was actually quite common among first century Jewish males. Interesting fact. As you might imagine... That very common name of Jesus among first century Jewish males fell quickly out of popularity among unbelieving Jews once a certain Jesus of Nazareth became famous. And then there was Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And the mentioning of Mark here is significant. It's actually remarkable. Mark was known as John Mark. He was the son of a woman named Mary who hosted the church in Jerusalem. She was a, a Jewish woman, and in Acts 12.12, 12, you can read how she opened up her home to all the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and they would go there, and they would, they would gather there for worship and for fellowship together. And John Mark, or Mark, was the son of this woman named Mary in Acts 12. Cousin of Barnabas, another church leader. Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on some of Paul's earliest missionary endeavors. He was with them in some of their, their earliest efforts. But then came a rift. And we read about that rift. I believe I listed it right there on your outline. We'll, we'll read it from the outline. In Acts 15, there was a contention. Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city and let's see how they're doing. But now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the man who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. A contention. 
Mark, who was a companion of Paul and Barnabas, and, and, and going throughout some of the earliest uh, parts of the first missionary journey, Mark abandoned the work. He left the work halfway through the journey. They got to a town, Pamphylia, and Mark just stopped. The Bible doesn't give great indicators as to why, what were the reasons behind Mark moving on. Uh, but certainly, we can gather from how Luke writes in Acts 15 that Paul was not amused by the departure. That Mark was expected to finish this journey that Paul and Barnabas were on. And that Mark had somehow gotten halfway through and stopped. He didn't persevere through the missions effort. Paul was not amused. Uh, he was frustrated by it. And so an argument occurs in Acts 15 when Mark wants to rejoin the efforts. Paul and Barnabas are talking and Barnabas says, hey, my cousin's back. He wants to join us. And, and, and Paul looks at Barnabas and says, we're not taking him. How can we take him? The last time he was with us, he deserted us. He got halfway through the mission and stopped. And there was an argument that ensued, a contention. And think about this, that the Bible records this is remarkable. Both remarkable and, and I would say refreshing, actually. Remarkable because you would expect, right? You would expect Luke, who, who's writing the book of Acts, and he's a Christian, and uh, he wants to paint a, a, a wonderful picture of the church and a wonderful picture of the gospel ministry. You would expect Luke having those motivate, motivating factors, wanting to craft a narrative that, that, was a, that was a good narrative of, see, look what happened to the gospel ministry. You would expect him to speak about how there was always harmony, there was always peace, there was always productivity. There was always a, a rosiness and a, and a perfection about the way in which the gospel ministry went out. You would expect Luke to speak about these missions efforts as if they went off without a hitch. That, they were, that, they, that these men and these partners in ministry would, ne they would never have an argument. That they would always be holy and righteous with one another. That they would never battle their old prideful selves. Not so here. Not so here. Luke is quite clear in Acts 15. There was an argument. A remarkable admission. By a, a Christian man trying to convey the truth of the gospel. There was an argument. But what makes this story not just remarkable but now refreshing. Refreshing is that by the time Colossians was written, some 13 years after Acts 15, by the time from Acts 15 all the way to the time of the writing of Colossians, 13 years had passed, it is quite clear from Paul's words about Mark that they had reconciled. 13 years had passed, but they didn't sweep it under the carpet they didn't ignore the issue. No, Paul and Mark and Barnabas, they re-engaged one another. They spoke openly to one another about their past hurts and frustrations. And they reconciled. They forgave each other. They regrouped as partners in ministry. And in Colossians 4.10, Paul sends greetings to the church at Colossians from his friend, John Mark.
You see, we will disagree from time to time. We're human. But the one thing we cannot do as Christians is to refuse to reconcile with one another. And when you seek out reconciliation, relationships get healed. Friendships are restored. Partnerships resume. Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they had a contention. They had an argument. Have we ever had an argument with another believer? Are we in an argument right now with a family member, a friend, someone that, that is in the faith that we love, but we're just we're crunching heads right now? Learn from the pattern of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. Don't let time pass without reconciling. Recognize that there might be moments where we need to part ways for a moment. But in the end, the goal is to return as one in the name of Christ and carry out the work of the ministry. Amen? Aristarchus greets you. Mark greets you. He goes on to say that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas about whom you've received instructions. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, we don't know the exact nature of these instructions that Paul mentions but perhaps the mention of Barnabas indicates that maybe Barnabas had written the church also and given some instructions about Mark, maybe commending Mark to the church and saying, hey, you know, Mark has, has been restored as a leader in the church. Please uh, li- listen to him, perhaps. Whatever the instructions were, Paul affirms those instructions and says, yes, I agree. Mark is a man to pay attention to. Aristarchus, Mark, Justice. Paul writes, verse 11, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They've proved a comfort to me. This is kind of a side comment, but it's, it's interesting that he makes it. He says, These three, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, are, are, are the only three co-workers who are of Paul's nationality, that is, Jewish. First century Jews who accepted Jesus faced intense communal persecution Isolation and ridicule. Read Galatians. Read Hebrews. And you will get a glimpse of what kind of persecution uh, was laid upon Jewish believers. It was intense. Galatians and Hebrews speaks to it. So Paul only had a few fellow Jewish Christians willing to go the extra mile for him. But these three were of great comfort to Paul. For they too knew the great social and religious pressures that he faced as a Jewish Christian. They were great teammates of Paul, great servant leaders. And now we have a few final more. Verse 12. Epaphras, who's one of you, Colossians, a bondservant of Christ, he greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that Epaphras has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. And Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet Let's start at verse 14 and kind of work our way back. Um, Luke is mentioned in, uh, in the New Testament only three times. But don't let his, the infrequency of his name fool you. Because Luke, of course, is the author of the gospel that bears his name and of Acts. So of Luke and Acts, which would account for uh, almost 25% of the New Testament. 
He was a trusted friend of Paul and of Peter's. He ministered to them both spiritually and physically using his skills as a, as a physician, which goes to show that every profession has its place in the kingdom of God. You might think, I'm just a repairman, or I'm just a secretary, or, or I'm just an artist, or I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. And you might think sometimes that, what's my job in the church? I, I, I don't, my, my work in the church, they don't match. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, just the other day, uh, Monica made mention of uh, a young man in our church who's going to be helping decorate some of the sets. He's got incredible artistic design, interior design abilities, and we're you know, going to be deploying him to help, help design the VBS sets. Every profession, every skill, every, every gift has its place in the church. And so whatever your background is, there's a place for that. Sometimes you just need to get creative. Paul also mentions Demas in verse 14. Or Demas. Not much is said of Demas other than that he greets the church. This may indicate that Paul did not have much to say about him. And sure enough, a few years later, Paul wrote to Timothy about this man. I list it also on your outline on the back. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, Make every effort, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. Again, a remarkable admission. This time by Paul in 2 Timothy 4. You think about people that criticize the New Testament or criticize the Bible and say, oh, well, the Bible was just written by, by people who, you know, they were, they were all Christians and, and they were all in the faith and so they, they made it look so good and, and they made it look so rosy and wonderful. It's passages like Acts 15. It's passages like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 that speak otherwise. That show the authenticity of the Christian faith. That the writers of the New Testament were so confident in their conviction that they could actually speak about the failures of their faith. That they could actually speak about ministry when it did not go well. Ministry that failed. Men and women that failed in the gospel work. For me, it speaks to the authenticity of the scriptures. The transparency of the scriptures. The openness of it. That Paul and Luke and Peter and others were willing to face the reality of life. Christianity is not always perfect. You know, uh, there's, I want you to know, it may be news to you, but... Sinners lead ministries. Sinners. Pastors are sinners. Elders are sinners. Uh, our ministry leaders are sinners. And sometimes our old sin can get the best of us. It did for Demas. Paul doesn't want to question Demas' salvation. I, I, so, many, so many commentaries, they read this and they say, See? Demas was never a, a, a believer as a result of this forsaking Paul. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say that. Paul simply says, look, the guy left me. You know what? Another guy left Paul. John Mark. And he came back a few years later. And so we don't know what happened to Demas, whether he continued 
to walk away from Paul and the work of the gospel ministry, or whether he returned one day. We don't know. But, some, but one thing we do know is that sometimes our sin can get the best of us. And Demas and you and I can abandon the work of the ministry. We can. It's a reality. It can happen to us too. All the more reason to surround ourselves with a team, as Paul did, a team of partners in ministry who can encourage us, who can press us forward. If the church, if if a church or ministry, if all it does is elevate one man, one man, one man to the top, and if that leader should ever fall, then that ministry would fall, that church would fall. We've all known churches that have built their entire ministry around one man, only to see on occasion that man fall. And when he falls, he'll take thousands with him. But churches that build around a team of leaders, of pastors, of elders, of other ministry leaders, not just one, but many, not just one, but a plurality, a team, is a healthier church, is a healthier organization that cooperates together. So that God forbid if one man should fall, the church does not fall with him. I saw this last night as we watched... Uh, the Camp Allendale fundraiser, Robin and Karen Wood are developing their team. Our missionaries in the back on on the photo board there, Camp Allendale, whom we've supported now for 33 years as a church, they are, they are getting that camp ready, that, the camp that ministers to abused and neglected kids. They've been in that ministry for 33 years. They're getting older. They're, they know that their time is getting shorter and they are developing a team around them. They've, they've got new directors and they've got new assistant directors. They've got two couples that Robin and Karen have brought on and I was remarking to Dave Bacon the other day as we sat there listening to their, to their partner's dinner uh, talk. I was remarking to Dave Bacon how they are poised for the future. They're not building their ministry around one person but around many. Another key partner of Paul's is found in verses 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, he greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I I bear witness that Epaphras has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. I mean, this is the second time, the second time that Paul has mentioned Epaphras in Colossians. The first time coming in chapter 1, verse 7. And this second mentioning of Epaphras is significant and leads uh, most scholars to believe that Epaphras was in fact the pastor of the church in Colossae and also perhaps in the neighboring towns of Laodicea and Heropolis. Epaphras had a special place in Paul's heart. I think when Paul looked at Epaphras, he saw a lot of himself. And the descriptions that he gives about Epaphras speak to that. On your outline, quickly, there was a kinship between these two men. Number one, they were both committed to to prayer, to prayer. Paul mentions his prayer life in 1 verse 3. He mentions Epaphras' prayer life in chapter 4 verse 12. A second thing, both men, they labored and they contended for the church. 
Paul talks about him laboring and contending for the church in chapter 129. He uses the same word in chapter 4 verse 12 to speak of Epaphras. And that word, by the way, in Greek is uh, agonizomai, from which we get the Greek word agony. He says, I was in agony for the church. I was, I was contending for her. I was, I was sweating for her, essentially, is what Paul's saying. And so also he says the same word of Epaphras. And finally, both men sought the Colossians' maturity and completeness. Both men sought the Colossians' maturity and completeness. You can see Paul's seeking of that in chapter 128 and also of Epaphras in 4.12. So, so Paul looked at Epaphras and as if he was looking in the mirror. And he writes, I bear him witness. He's, he's telling the Colossians now, he's telling the church. He says, I bear witness to this guy that he has a great zeal for you. The word zeal there is the Greek word panos. It means pain. It means suffering. It means hard work. The word zeal there actually does not do it justice. There, there, there's a better word there. Um, you might, you might put in their painful work, arduous labor. I bear witness that this man works tirelessly for you, he tells the church. Why was it so painful for Epaphras? He was probably a young man in ministry, Epaphras was. Uh, likely very young, actually. Um, just because of some of the nature of the circumstances in that day and age and when the gospel could have gotten to Colossae, it would have been a generation uh, like Epaphras' young, younger generation that would have responded to it. Also, Epaphras was dealing with false teachers. Remember that? Chapter 2 of Colossians? He was dealing with other uh, probably Jewish uh, men that had come in the church and, and started to, to speak words of syncretism and, and, and a melding together of both Judaism and Christianity and, and pagan mysticism. And Epaphras is a young man in ministry. He was trying to, trying to honor the, the, the elders, but at the same time, he, he knew that what they, some of them were teaching was not true. And so it was difficult for him to stand up and know how to fight and know how to teach the truth as a young man in ministry. It was difficult for him to bear the burden of, those, of the teaching that was taking place by others and to try and help the church discern truth. To know that he was dealing with, contending for the church and dealing with uh, some of the agony of, of, of church life. Doug Moo writes this, I, 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 lo- I really love what he says here. This is a great quote. He says, ministers, and by that I would extend that to anyone who ministers to the church, not just pastors. People who serve the church are faced with threats to the spiritual well-being of their charges, that is their flock. And they have to devote great energy to the defense of the gospel. And such work brings great stress out of concern for the spiritual health of the community and because of attacks from opponents. Epaphras surely needed support in the midst of such a difficult and taxing ministry. These words are like water to me. I I understand them as Doug Moo writes them. When you are ministering to others and when God is saying, I want you to take, take care of this flock. When you're an Awana leader and God says, these are the five kids that, I want, that I'm entrusting to you. 
when you're a youth leader and, and God pulls aside a small group of teenagers and says, these are the teenagers that I'm entrusting to you. When you're a Bible study leader and God says, these are the people that you're to teach. There is a sense uh, of incredible responsibility for those whom you lead. And how much those ministers of the gospel need personal encouragement as they lead. To surround themselves with people who can build them up in the faith. Spur them on in the faith. Remind them that they're doing a good job. It's so important. And so coast. Pay attention to your leaders. Your elders, your pastors, your ministry leaders. The people who have ministered to you and discipled you. And be sensitive to encouraging them and to building them up in the faith. Because if they're anything like Epaphras, chances are they're, they're agonizing at times over the work of the ministry. And that they have a great zeal for you. That at times that work is arduous and painful to bear some of those burdens. And that the church can rally around them and encourage them. Some final instructions. Verses 15 and 16. Almost to the end here. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos in the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. I love verses 15 and 16 because they demonstrate just how much Paul wanted to see mutual love and cooperation between churches. He tells the Christians in Colossae, he says, go up, walk those 10 miles to Laodicea and give them greetings. Paul wants them to go visit the house church in Nymphos' home and read to them the letter that he's written to them. Read Colossians to the church 10 miles to the north. Paul desired that the churches partner together for mutual encouragement in the work of the ministry. I would say to that, beware, Paul would probably tell us, beware, beware of churches that never partner with others. Beware of churches and church leaders that think and sometimes even speak about how much better they are than the rest. I know one church locally um, that doesn't consider it Christian ministry if, uh, if you're not serving in their church. You have to go outside the church. Uh, excuse me, that if you, excuse me, that you have to go inside the church. That if you go outside the church and you're serving over here, that that doesn't count. It's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, um, I, I'm, I'm proud of, of, of our church in that we just want to deploy. Deploy, deploy. Send people to Camp Allendale. Send people to Haiti. Send people to Myanmar. Go out. Because you know what? Ministry doesn't just happen on this campus at, at all, actually. It happens everywhere we go. And we need to be a church that deploys people, not just focuses on our inner circle. Beware of churches that never partner with others. Beware of churches and church leaders that speak only of their own ministries. On the flip side, be careful about your partnerships with others. Make sure that you can agree on the major issues of the faith, especially if you're working together in ministry. Paul urges us to seek ministry partnerships and to know where to draw the line in those partnerships. So don't isolate yourself from other churches, but try to also celebrate the things you have in common 
and the things in which you can work together. Verse 16, he says, Now when Colossians is read among you, in other words, when you take this letter up there and read it to them, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now open up your Bibles and turn to the epistle of Laodicea. Come on. Open up your Bibles and turn to the letter to the Laodiceans. Go ahead. Chapter 1, verse 1. You don't have it? That's funny, neither do I. Here we have a, a, a wonderful anomaly of Scripture that Paul mentions a letter that he wrote to the church in Laodicea that over the course of human history has been lost. Paul also told, told the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, he said, uh, read the letter that I wrote you earlier. So there's a letter that's also been lost to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians had a letter before it. So our 1 Corinthians should really be 2 Corinthians, and our 2 Corinthians should really be 3 Corinthians, because there's a 1 Corinthians out there somewhere that, that history has lost. I wonder uh, if we will get to read these letters one day in heaven. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, but in God's providence, he saw fit not to let us see these letters in, in our day and age. Perhaps some archaeologists will find them one day. But don't miss the greater point. What's the greater point here? That Paul encouraged the churches to share with one another. To read each other's letters. To hear each other's testimonies. To serve one another, to share the joys and the sorrows. That's why we put in our bulletin, would you open your bulletin just briefly? That's why we put in your bulletin the update from Mike and Carrie in Haiti, in the mission spotlight. That's why we do these things, friends. It, it, we don't just put it in there to fill the bulletin. We put it in there because you have a part in the ministry in Haiti. Your dollars our people, our resources, our prayers are there with them as they suffer Katya's loss. We're with them. We're partners. We share together. Finally, we close with verses 17 and 18 of Colossians 4. Paul writes, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Archippus was likely another pastoral leader in Colossae. Paul encourages him to stay the course. And he says it publicly, which is interesting. He doesn't write a private letter to Archippus like he does Philemon. He says it publicly to Archippus. Which, uh, make what you will, perhaps the church needed to hear that they needed to rally around Archippus. Paul could have written this privately to him. Instead, he chose to publicly address a pastor in the church and, and, and let the church know, hey, this guy needs some help. I want him to finish well. That he might fulfill his ministry. And finally, Paul signs the letter. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. It's likely that, that scribes wrote much of Colossians and all the letters of Paul. And that the, 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 the author of the letters would, would sign the last few statements in their own handwriting. 
He signs it with his own hand, reminding them of his present travails in Roman chains. But despite the hardships, he wishes God's grace be with them and that God's will would be done in them. Amen. So there you have Colossians. We've been in this book for four months, four chapters, four months. Wow, we've got to go a little faster next time. Um, I, as I thought about how to close our thoughts and, and ideas about this book and, and what God has impressed upon our hearts, I, I was just really struck by how it finished. Remember, this, is, this was a young church, Colossians was. A young church, a church Paul had never visited, a church that was battling false teaching, a church that had some charismatic uh, uh, teachers and in, 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 in some... And false teachers rise up and they look so appealing, so alluring. There were probably one or two men in the church that people went, wow, aren't they the ones we should follow? It's interesting how Paul closes this letter. Knowing full well that the church was being infiltrated by these very charismatic and flamboyant teachers, false teachers, Paul could have chosen to close the letter by saying, listen to me. Those flamboyant teachers, they don't know what they're talking about. You listen to me. I'm the apostle. I'm the teacher of the church. I'm the leader of the church. Pay attention to what I say. He could have contrasted himself alone with the flamboyance of those few false teachers who were certainly elevating their own persons. But instead, Paul did not draw attention to one man. He drew attention to many. He said, Colossians, I want you to look at this team of brothers. You see, these these brothers here, they're a little bit different than those false teachers over there. These brothers are diakonos. They're servants. These brothers are doulos. These brothers are slaves. They're slaves of God. And of Christ. These are men who consider themselves less than those around them. Pay heed to those who do not only teach, Paul says, but who listen. Pay heed to those who not only go out, who don't just fight and disagree with one another, but who reconcile with one another, as Paul did with Barnabas and Mark. Pay attention to those who pray fervently for you, as Paul and Epaphras and others. Pay attention to those who work cooperatively with other believers, other churches, and who do not isolate and say, come over here to our little special club. Pay attention to those who suffer in the name of the gospel, as Paul did in chains. Pay attention to those and watch their lives Paul writes, not just their winsome words. That's how Paul closes the letter. He says, look at this team. Look at this great team. These partners in ministry who are serving you. He knew that by appealing to this servant leadership team, Paul knew that he was protecting the young church. He knew that they would grow in faith by taking a look at that team of leaders And realizing that it would be a good pattern for them to follow in their footsteps. 
May we be servant leaders. Not charismatic, flamboyant, look at me, look at our ministry. We're the only ones, we're the only way. May we be a team of servant leaders at Coast. And may we heed those in the Christian church who exemplify a life of servitude to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that in the midst of the persecution in Colossae, while this young church was being infiltrated with false teachers, flamboyant men who were coming in, teaching false doctrine and gospel, teaching and leading the people astray. And the people were, God, we know they were allured by that. We know they were drawn to that as we are in our culture today. We love, we love it when, when one leader is just so uh, seemingly perfect. And sometimes we blindly follow such uh, charisma. But God, we see here that Paul appealed differently to the church. He said, pay attention to the, to the brethren who are servants, who are slaves of Christ. Pay attention to the team. Not just the one, but the group of leaders who have forsaken much for the gospel of Christ. Pay attention to the team who's praying for you, who's walking alongside you, who's not just teaching you, but listening and caring and loving. God, may we, uh, may we aspire to be just like this team that Paul's appealed to. He wasn't name-dropping, we know, Lord. He was speaking of partners in ministry who were doing it right. Lord, may we be servant leaders in the spirit of Tychicus and Onesimus and Archimus and Mark and many others. May we show and lead the church in a way that leads with the humility of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.